Well, please turn with me in our Bibles this evening uh, to 2 Samuel chapter 8. And we have been going through the book of Samuel um, for the last little bit. And this evening we're coming to chapter 8, which is dealing with David's victories as Israel's king. Uh, really looking at a high point in describing uh, David's kingship. There will be later chapters where we'll come to some of David's low points. Uh, but this evening we are looking at a high point uh, in David's reign. Second Samuel chapter 8. And if you're looking in the church Bibles, uh, this should be on page 260. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Metheg Ammah out of the hand of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Betah and from Berathai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took very much bronze. When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer, Toy sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. For Hadadezer had often been at war with Toy, and Joram uh, brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilab, was recorder. And Zadok, the son of Ahitab, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests. And Sarai was secretary. 
And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were priests. Oftentimes, uh, when stories are written, uh, the journalist or the storyteller uh, will write the story not just to list the accomplishments that someone has uh, been able to do in their career or uh, in a time span, but they'll want to get underneath those accomplishments and really begin to ask the question, how is it that they were to accomplish what they did? Uh, whatever they were committing themselves to, what made them so successful? And so the storyteller might begin to uh, ask the question, well, was it their dedication? Uh, was, it their, was it their upbringing? Uh, were, they, were they disciplined in their, in their skills? Is that what was really making them stand out? Uh, was it their mindset? Uh, were they people who just had a, a frame of mind that even when challenges came, they had a certain way of looking at challenges and they, they persevered? Uh, what is it that really uh, stands out uh, that you can look to to explain why they were so successful? This evening, as we are looking at 2 Samuel, we are looking really at the success of David as a king. We're looking at how he was so uh, successful in his military battles. But this evening, we're not just looking at the fact that David was uh, victorious or that he was successful, but we're really looking at why was David so successful? Why or how was it that he had all these victories? And what does it really tell us? What was it trying to teach the people of Israel in the Old Covenant? And what is it meant to teach us living in the New Covenant that David was so successful? And ultimately, we want to see that because the Lord will cause his son to be victorious, that we are to look and to find our refuge in him, the one that the Lord has chosen and has approved. And this evening, as we're looking at chapter 8, we really just want to zero in on that idea of David's victories. We want to look at the account of all the victories that David had. But then we want to think about the cause. Why is it that David had those victories? And then lastly, we want to simply ask, what is the result? What is the outcome of all his achievements? And what difference does that make? Well, first, uh, there is the account uh, of David's victories. David has been given great and awesome promises. You remember in chapter 7, David has been given wonderful promises that the Lord would make his name great. He would appoint a place for his people and he would give rest from all their enemies. But God's promises extended even beyond David. Those promises were really to become the bedrock of Israel's hope. They were to look to one offspring of David whose kingdom would be everlasting. But now, in light of those promises, the real uh, direction now is to see how reliable is God's promise to David? How firm can we look to, uh, to what God has said? And what are we to make of David's kingdom? And here in chapter 8, we begin to see early signs of God's favor and of the strengthening of David's kingdom. David's success then is described in the way that he is victorious over all his enemies. And as we come to this chapter here, you'll notice that the enemies that are mentioned are the same enemies that Saul had. Back in 1 Samuel in chapter 14, you'll remember that these are the enemies that Saul himself had to defend Israel against. The Philistines, 
the Moabites, the Edomites, and even the king of Zobah are all mentioned. And, and Saul spent his time trying to defend his people against being constantly attacked. But here we see David not simply defending his people, but we actually see David defeating his enemies. That he is successful beyond anything that Saul himself was able to obtain. And first, we are told that he was successful against the Philistines. Again, Saul was a commission. He was appointed to be the ruler, the leader of Israel, for the express purpose of saving Israel from the hand of the Philistines. That was his calling. And Saul spent much time fighting with the Philistines. And ultimately, it was in a battle with the Philistines that Saul's own life ended and his own reign came to a close. But David here is victorious beyond anything that Saul could muster himself. David's fighting with the Philistines shows that where Saul failed ultimately, David triumphed. And you notice there that it tells us that he uh, took Methagema out of the hand of the Philistines. That is referring to a, a place within the, the boundaries of the Philistines. That he's taking really what is known as Gath and its surrounding villages. If you look at parallel passages in the book of Chronicles. David here is not simply defending uh, the, the kingdom of Israel. But he is actually on the attack. And he is actually conquering the Philistines uh, as he goes into Gath. So he's victorious against Israel's ancient nemesis. And beating the Philistines uh, uh, as their king. But we're also told about his victories against the Moabites. There in verse 2, it says that he defeated the Moab and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death and one full line to be spared. The Philistines were uh, to the west of Israel. They were along the coast uh, and they were uh, really a constant threat to Israel from the western side. But the Moabites were on the eastern side of Israel. And so what we're seeing here is that David has not only gained victory on his western side, but he's actually gaining victory on his eastern side as well as he attacks uh, the Moabites and he uh, defeats them. And it tells us here something of his severe judgment coming against the Moabites because he does line them up and he does execute two-thirds of those that were lined up and no reason is given for why he spares the third line but it would have been viewed as an act of clemency or an act of mercy that he was doing this and it tells us that as a result those who were spared became his servants and they paid tribute to him Moab uh, the Moabites were a people that had a constant hostility with the people of Israel they were not allowing uh, them to pass through uh, their territory when Israel came up out of Egypt. And since that time, really, there was that constant hostility. But David himself had family ties with Moab. You remember David's own great-grandmother uh, was a Moabite. But it's this underlying tension of the Moabites constantly fighting with Israel where we see this battle ensuing and uh, the tensions uh, resurrecting, as it were. But David, uh, as he brings this judgment on them, uh, you remember that when Israel came up out of Egypt, 
one of the things that happened was is that there was a king of Moab uh, named Balak and he wanted to curse the Israelites and he got this man named Balaam to do that except when Balaam went to pronounce a prophecy he said he could only say what the Lord had given him and Balaam's prophecy uh, came out uh, to be instead a star shall come out of Jacob a scepter shall rise out of Israel and it shall crush the forehead of Moab. The people who were seeking to bring a downfall to Israel, Balak wanted to curse Israel. Instead, we're going to be brought down by a future promised king. And now, out of Jacob, a king has come. The scepter has come from Israel. And he has come to crush Moab. And so we're beginning to see a fulfillment of even what Balaam was talking about here with the judgment coming against the people of Moab. So David has victory uh, against the Philistines on the west. He has victory against Moab on the east. We're also told that David has victory against the king of Zobah and against Damascus. Uh, Zobah was in the north, north of David's kingdom. And as mentioned, Zobah was an enemy even of Saul during Saul's reign. But David here attacks Zobah when Zobah had gone to try and recover part of the territory around the river, uh, the river Euphrates, uh, it, it is believed. And as he's doing this, David is attacking him from the rear. And he ultimately uh, conquers him. Uh, the northern uh, uh, kingdom of Zobah then looked to Damascus or to the Syrians to help them, but David uh, defeated them as well. And as a result, David captured many horsemen and foot soldiers, and he crippled the horses uh, when he hamstrung them. That's what he's doing. He's crippling them so that they would no longer be used as war horses, but only as uh, farm animals. They would only be used for uh, labor but not for military battle. Uh, David's doing that uh, in part perhaps because that's what Joshua had done uh, under explicit command. Uh, but it was also a way of uh, identifying not to put their trust in the chariots or in the horses. Uh, but David all the while is uh, recovering and bringing great uh, um, uh, gains uh, to his kingdom through this uh, battle. Damascus uh, and uh, ultimately is captured by David. Uh, they are defeated by David's forces and he sets up uh, garrisons or forts in those lands. So David has victory in the west, on the east, in the north, and then also in Edom. And Edom is just south uh, of Israel, uh, south and to the east. David also made a name for himself with his battle against uh, Edom in the Valley of Salt. Uh, where again, uh, he is fulfilling what Balaam's prophecy spoke of. The Edomites would be dispossessed, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion over them. So all these victories are being spoken of. David has victory in the west, the east, the north, and the south. But what's important about that is, is that it is signaling that David's kingdom is being made firm that David's kingdom is established. And it's an early sign of the Lord's purpose to establish David's kingdom. This is the Lord's work. So there's the account of his victories. 
But there's also uh, what stands out about this is the cause of David's victories. David's success uh, was not accredited to his own uh, military strategies or anything in David, but rather, as we've mentioned, it is something that is based on God's promise. God's promise of bringing judgment on his enemies and God's promise uh, to David. God would bring uh, uh, his promises to fulfillment against Israel's enemies, but he had also promised David to make his name great, to appoint a place for his people, and to give his people rest. And we remember, we were saying what's so important about that is, is the promises to David were piggybacking. They were really building off of what God had promised to Abraham, that he would bless him, and through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That God's blessing was being channeled through the offspring of Abraham. And now that was being carried on now through the line of David. It's getting more and more narrow in terms of where the Lord's blessing will be realized. But as uh, that is being communicated, remember that one of the things that God promised Abraham was is that he would give him the land. There was an inheritance of land that the Lord promised to him. From the river uh, Egypt to the river Euphrates uh, was the land that God was giving to Abraham's offspring. And if you know your Bible, you know that in the time of Joshua, the people came into that promised land. But what's not immediately apparent is, is that when they came into that land of Canaan, the people took uh, possession of only part of that land. They were not successful in taking over the whole of the land. In fact, the, in many places they failed to take possession of the land. And so it was only partially fulfilled in the time of Joshua. It was only partially fulfilled even in the time of Saul. But what's happening here is, is that we're seeing a new level of fulfillment of God's promise. That, that the land that was promised to Abraham's offspring, to his descendants, is now being realized in a much greater way. In fact, commentators look at this and they say that what's happening here is, is that David's kingdom is actually doubling. It's actually growing that much as he is expanding to the west and to the east and to the north and the south. He's not simply conquering land. He's actually simply inheriting the land that was promised to Abraham. And that shapes the, the direction of David's attacks and what David is doing. He's actually obtaining the promises that were promised to Abraham's offspring. And that's what is so key in this chapter. There is a new fulfillment or a new level of fulfillment uh, to God's promises. And that's uh, what is underscored there on two occasions, both in verse 6 and again in verse 14. The Lord gave him victory. Why is the Lord doing this? Why is the Lord bringing judgment on these nations? Why is David so successful? Because God is fulfilling his promise. Because God is at work. And his work is now channeled through his anointed servant. David's victories then are ultimately because the Lord has done it. This account might not be the most riveting chapter in all of scripture. You might read this chapter and think it doesn't sound that relevant. Uh, maybe it was relevant a long time ago because it dealt with a nation or a kingdom, uh, but it seems passe. 
But this is very important because what it is underscoring is the fact that God is involved in history, that God is at work in time, that he's at work in the world. Because it's easy for us to operate on this working assumption that there may be a God, but he's not really involved in what's going on. And instead, we just kind of work out our life, not really think about what is God doing? What is God's work? This chapter here is emphasizing that God has done it. David has victory. His kingdom is being established. The land is being inherited. This is the Lord's doing. And it's showing us that God is at work in history. And we are to live acknowledging uh, the Lord's work. David's work then is because, uh, David's success is because the Lord is behind it. But we might be sitting here thinking to ourselves, well then if that's true, how is the Lord at work today? How would we explain if God was at work in history, if he was blessing David and causing him to have victory back then? Where do we point to and say, that's what God is at work at today? That might sound like a challenging question, but when we slow down and think about Samuel, the answer isn't that hard for us to pull out. God's promise to David is the answer of what God is at work at today. The Lord came to David and he promised him, I will establish your kingdom. I will make your name great. I will appoint you a place and I will give you rest from your enemies. And then he promised one of your offspring will inherit an everlasting kingdom. That my steadfast love will not depart from your offspring. But that I will establish it and it will endure forever. So when we think about, well, what is God at work at today? How is God directing all events? What is God's purpose in history? What is God doing? The answer is, is God is causing the kingdom that he has established to be secure. He is causing the kingdom of his son, the Lord Jesus, to endure forever. He is causing it to be made firm and to bring it to its completion. God's purpose is still known. And we are still to live in acknowledgement of what God has done. The Lord has caused the kingdom of his son, the Lord Jesus, to be established forever. Remember last time we were reading in Luke 1. You have remembered your servants. You have caused salvation to come through your servant David. And now we live in light of the, of the coming of Jesus. God's work is still unfolding. God is still at work even today. And so when the Son of God entered into this world, we can say he was met with hostility on every side. And yet the scriptures testify that he has been victorious over his enemies. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. By being victorious over them in the cross. He even defeated death itself through his resurrection. And now death itself has been swallowed up in victory. David's victories then show that the Lord's faithfulness to his promise is reliable. And it showed that David is the Lord's chosen servant. And we live today and we can say God's promises are faithful. 
as we look at what he has done in Jesus, and we can see that Jesus is the Lord's chosen service servant. Christ's victory over sin, then, his victory over sin and death and Satan itself, likewise show God's faithfulness to his promises. And it points us to the one in whom we are to trust. The people of God were to look to David because he was the Lord's anointed. The nations were to look to David because he's the Lord's anointed. And we are to look to the ultimate Messiah, the Lord Jesus, because he's the one in whom God's promises find their yes and their amen. So there's this account of David's victories. Yes, he goes north and south and east and west. He's having victories everywhere. But why is it? It's because the Lord is at work. The Lord gave him victory over his enemies because this is the Lord's unfolding purpose. This is how God's blessing is going to come to the nations. This is how God's promises are going to be realized. But what is the result of these victories? The first result is is that the spoils are brought in. Notice it doesn't just say that David had victory, but it tells us of a reception that comes as well. When David beat the Moabites, it tells us that he took tribute from those that he spared. Based on 2 Kings, uh, that is most likely to be referring to sheep and to wool. Uh, That David took great quantities of this from the Moabites. When David went on and had battle in the north, it told us that he took back many horsemen uh, and soldiers. When he beat Damascus, he also uh, received offerings uh, from them as well. In verse 7, it tells us that he beat the king of Zobah, and he took their shields of gold and a great quantity of bronze. Much of that bronze would later be dedicated in the working and the building of the temple. You think of the instruments of bronze. You think about the sea of bronze. You think of the pillars of bronze. This is part of what David has taken as the spoils from his victory. All of his spoils now uh, are ultimately going to be dedicated uh, to the Lord. But it tells us not only of how he took the spoils from the nations, but it tells us of another response. You remember Toy, uh, the king of Hamath, there in verse 9. He was a, a, a different response to David. When he heard how David had defeated the king of Zobah, he expressed his gratitude and he gladly pursued peaceful terms by coming under the authority of David. That's what he's doing when he comes and offers gold and silver. He's acknowledging David as the greater king and himself as a servant of David. He's coming under David, looking for his protection. And so you're seeing these two different responses when you look at the the nations around David. Much of them are in hostility towards him. There is animosity. There's battles going on. But then you also see a response of humble or humility, uh, trust coming to David, where uh, they look to him as the Lord's anointed. They would pay tribute to the Lord's king gladly and willingly. But you notice that in either case, they all would pay tribute to the Lord's anointed. Everyone will acknowledge the Lord's chosen. Whether they are Moabite, whether they are Philistine, whether they are of Hamath's district, they will all pay tribute to the one that the Lord has chosen. 
His victories then will be acknowledged. His victories will uh, uh, bring a response from the nations. Uh, and so uh, tribute is given by all of these nations. We are told there in verse 11 that when David received all these things, that he dedicated it to the Lord, together with the silver and the gold uh, that he dedicated from the nations that he subdued. David's actions here actually are something that are later reflected on by uh, the prophets. Uh, they would pick up on this to explain an even greater work that the Lord would do in the future. The prophet Isaiah, for instance, says, the wealth of the nations shall come to you. The Lord did something wonderful in the time of David. He caused his people to prosper. Their kingdom grew. Their, their people enjoyed peace. When the wealth of the nations came into Israel, it was a sign of God's favor. And then the prophet said, God's going to do something even greater. The wealth of the nations will come to you. That's what Isaiah was saying. That's what Haggai also said, even with respect to a later temple. Haggai, for instance, in chapter 2, uh, would say, And I will shake all the nations, so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in. I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. God will cause the nations, the glory, the treasures of the nations to come in. And it won't simply be for the building of a physical temple, but it'll be something that displays God's glory that causes all the nations to take notice. They will all recognize God's glory and they will come to receive and to enter in to God's praise. The Lord was doing an even greater work that would then transcend what was accomplished through David, and it would cause the nations to give glory to God. Fast forward to the New Testament. You think about the Christmas narratives. We read about the wise men who come bearing gifts. What are they doing? They're bringing the treasures of the nations to the one born king of the Jews. They are symbolically expressing this is the one that is worthy of our worship. This is the Lord's chosen, and we are to find refuge in him. You turn to the book of Revelation, and it talks about how the glory of the nations will walk in. They will enter in to uh, uh, give glory to God, that they will themselves be part of it. It says, by its light will the nations walk. The kings of the earth will bring uh, their glory into it. And so there's this, you can trace it throughout scripture. What David did when he dedicated all that gold and silver was an acknowledgement that God had given him great prosperity. God's favor had been shown. But the scriptures say God is going to do something even greater. He will cause the treasures of the nations, the wealth of the nations, to give glory to God by an even greater work. That greater work is ultimately the coming of the Messiah, which will cause the nations to give glory to God. They will come under his rule and pay tribute to him. And so as we're looking at the victories of David here, it's important because it's paying tribute to who is the Lord's chosen. But how do the nations respond? 
One version is hostility, but they will be defeated. The other response is humility, and they will find refuge. And so as we live out our lives, we are forced to deal with the fact that there is a kingdom that God has established. Are we people living in resistance to God's kingdom, or are we people who have found our refuge in Christ? Have we been people who look to Christ as our safety, as our hope, as our security? Because if we have, we will enjoy the prosperity that Christ has accomplished, the salvation from sin. Not only will Christ's kingdom be ultimately successful, but as it goes on to say at the end of the chapter very quickly, it tells us that David's kingdom was one that was to be administered or was administered with justice and equity or justice and righteousness. Not only was it doing what was right, but it was setting things right. And obviously that is in a limited way describing what David's kingdom was aiming at. He was striving to honor God in his actions in how he conducted the kingdom. And David was a sinner, and his kingdom wasn't perfect. But it does foreshadow the Messiah's kingdom, which would be established in justice and in righteousness. So when we think about the kingdom of God, it's not only that it will succeed, but that it is what we should want it to be. It is a kingdom where things are as they ought to be, where things are being set right. Again, we looked at Jeremiah this morning, but in Jeremiah 23, uh, it goes on and it says, his kingdom will be marked by righteousness and his name will be called the Lord is our righteousness. That's what his name will be. And so his kingdom will display what is right and how things ought to be. Jesus then has established his kingdom. He has defeated sin at the cross. He has disarmed the rulers and authorities. He has accomplished victory, and the Lord has put all things under his feet. Not only will his kingdom be victorious, but it is marked as how things ought to be. And so as we think about his kingdom, where are we? It says that David's name would be made great. Here against the Edomites, his name became a name that was great. His victory against the Edomites would make him forever remembered. He would give, have a great name. But when you think about the Lord Jesus, it tells us that in taking the form of a servant, God has highly exalted him and given him a name, a name that is above every name. And then what does it say? That at the, knee, at the, at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess. Every knee will pay tribute to the king. Those who live in resistance will be judged, but those who find their refuge in this king will find eternal security. Those are the two realities, and we see them ultimately in Christ. Are we looking to Christ as our hope, and as our confidence. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that there is a reason to hope in Christ, knowing that his work is successful because it is the work of God, knowing that his reign is one that is just and right, 
And so we pray, Lord, that as we live in a world that is marked by unrighteousness, where things happen as they ought not to be, as we long for things that we cannot realize ourselves, we pray that these would be clues and signals to us to look uh, not to the kingdoms of men, but ultimately to the kingdom of our God. Go before us, we pray in Jesus' name.